Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often, they are founded in fact. Broadcasting live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California, this is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael, and we are so excited to welcome back to the show historian, folklorist, museum educator, and podcast host, Kristen Harris. And she was on the show before and talked about the seer of Salem, and that was really fascinating. And so we thought she'd be the perfect person to come on and talk about the Salem witch trials, but she's going to be doing it from a particular perspective. So we're really excited to have her back. But before we get started, Michael has a few announcements. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our show. Um, we're getting close to the end of the year. This is the end of season four coming up, which is pretty cool. Um, we've got some great guests coming up next week at Spell It Out, and so Krista's segment. And then the following week, we're going to have Marnie and Caroline back, our astrologer friends, on Election Day. And we're going to look at some of the astrological trends going forward over the next couple of years and how that applies to the elections and some of the results and all that good stuff. So uh, join us for that. And get all the information on our website, sixcentsociety.com, S-A-X-T-H, all spelled out. And while you're there, if you can afford to, buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi. It really helps cover some of our costs. But most important thing is click like and subscribe on YouTube, even if you're listening as an audio podcast. And when you get home, sneak over to YouTube and click like and subscribe and uh, help us grow our audience. That really does help tremendously. So it won't take up too much more time because I know we've got a whole lot of stuff to cover. So I'm going to kick it back to you, Krista. So take it away, Krista. Great. Thank you, Michael. And Welcome, Kristen. Hi, thanks for having me back. I'm very excited. I'm so glad you decided to come back. I know we talked about that even after the show, the first show, and I was so thrilled that you, uh, you know, remembered and you agreed to because you're definitely the perfect person to be, to me, to be talking about this topic. Uh, Thank now, you. now I, I think maybe um, I know most people know what the Salem witch trials are, but maybe you could give a brief summary for there are people probably that don't out there or have forgotten some of the details before we get into sort of the more, uh, the perspective you're gonna look at it through. Sure. Um, so the Salem Witch Trials was a period um, in, well, Salem, Massachusetts, but some other areas that are now Danvers, Peabody, et cetera, things have sort of changed as far as the makeup of this area. Um, but I like to say all of New England, because while it started in Salem and in Salem Village, it really did spread to like almost 20 communities uh, in Essex County. So it's this period where um, a few people start having fits. I'm trying to like keep it very minuscule because it's so complicated to sure. explain. Um, so some strange fits start happening with some of the neighborhood girls. It spreads very quickly and they are examined. A doctor examines them. The community sort of looks for what is occurring in these strange instances. They decide that the crime is witchcraft and that is what is affecting the initial young women who start having the afflictions. And by the end of the Salem witch trials, which took place for a period of less than a year, it was about 10 months. Um, 
unfortunately, 20 people are executed. 19 people are hanged for the crime of witchcraft, which is a capital crime at that time. One person was pressed to death, which is possibly the only illegal execution to take place during the Salem witchcraft trials. Um, and finally, the courts are dissolved uh, when England gets involved and things sort of get out of hand. But it is um, the largest outbreak of witchcraft that ever occurred in North America over the shortest period of time. <laughs> wow. It's definitely something, at least growing up, we all had to read The Crucible by Arthur Miller, and it introduced, um, there's a public education at the time, and introduced that topic, and I, I would think most people are aware of it, which is fascinating because there are definitely more, there are other accounts of witch trials throughout the world, but there's something about Salem that captures people and the attention of people over many, many years, and still does. It does. And I think um, that's for a few reasons. One, probably because of um, the popularity of The Crucible but uh, um, and sort of the focus on that as an art piece, as a commentary on um, the things of its time, which were, you know, obviously they say there's connections to McCarthyism, the Red Scare, everything like that. Um, but it even goes deeper than that. And even in Salem, I always like to tell people our Salem tourism and interest in the events of the witchcraft trials as a historical sort of event um, even goes back to the 1890s um, is when you first start seeing people actively discussing this and especially uh, the the bicentennial of the trials, 1892, when people start publishing accounts of this history and sort of looking back at it. Um, because for many, many years, you know, Salem did not want to discuss these events. Um, there were people that were even brought up on, you know, sedition charges um, for writing certain things about it. A man named Thomas Mall was actually brought up on sedition charges for his writings about what occurred. Um, and it was something that people sort of wanted to put behind them in this community for a really long time. And then, you know, you have the 1890s, you have more and more people starting to write about this history. Then you get the crucible and then people, I think, sort of it captured their imagination because, I still think the 17th century in particular and the Puritan society is so far removed from us because we're so used to our history starting in the American education system, you know, in 1776, right? Like right. we're so used to that, that it's so far removed from people that they cannot believe in the place that we are now living that something like this happened. Um, I don't know why we can't believe that, but, <laughs> um, but yeah. And I think it's just that it captures the imagination in that way still. And, and there was also the um, compilation of the records that was put together, was it 2009 by, um, I know the, one of the general editors was Bernard Rosenthal, and I bought a copy. Yeah. What a piece of work, my God. And and to have all of those historical documents to look at, and I don't suppose you always have that with trials and things, you know, it seems like they have quite a lot. Yeah, and 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 that's one of the um, the biggest misconceptions. Even still, even still, I hear people say, "Oh, well, there's just not enough left to to really know what happened." And I say, "No, there's actually a lot left." Um, you know, the and I always point to the Bernard Rosenthal uh, book, and there's a woman named Margot Burns who I credit a lot of that editing to as well, who's done some work on witchcraft trials elsewhere in New England, um, outside of Salem, but there is just such a breadth of information with the witch trials that I think it's just fascinating that people still sort of grapple with the reason. Well, it was this reason, it was this reason. And, and it's one of those things where 
oftentimes it's all of those reasons that people are thinking of. And you can just look at those documents and sort of get an idea with the annotations, like what exactly that meant and what those statements mean, what those um, accusations really mean to the society. Um, and I think we're very lucky in that regard that we we actually do have so much to look at. Yeah, it's, it's a little intimidating. I, I did open it up last night for the first time. I've been meaning to, and it's a little intimidating to read, uh, but I did manage to read a little bit of some of the uh, the people I'm kind of drawn to is Rebecca, Rebecca Nurse and, and Giles Corey. They they definitely captured my interest from the beginning and for the reasons that are very obvious. Um, right. And I did find like uh, her examination and what she said and and it really brings it home it, it's it's really devastating <laughs> you know when you, it is. you, you it's, very it's a visceral. real person there you know responding to this interrogation that is that seems crazy but I know we wanted to talk a little too about what you know witchcraft really was during that time and and you were going to look at it more from the etymological point of view first yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, I'm glad that you brought up Rebecca Nurse, because for me, um, and actually, that's such an amazing contrast of people that you mentioned too. Um, the contrast between the accusations against somebody like Rebecca Nurse, and then against somebody like Giles Corey. Um, Rebecca Nurse, you know, was a pillar of the community. And when you when you're reading that, and you have the context that you know, Rebecca Nurse was sort of going deaf in one ear when she was interrogated. And when you see that examination, you go into the, that context that she's getting confused because she was sick for so long. And and you can sort of puzzle out that she's getting so confused. And um, to me, that's always just the most visceral example of, of what some of these people went through is Rebecca Nurse's examination and her um, interrogation in the courtroom. Um, but from the etymological perspective, um, it is really interesting, too, because if we talk about Rebecca Nurse, um, she was a midwife in town. So she was highly respected in the community. Um who then becomes accused as a witch. And I mean, to the Puritans, you know, this was the ultimate, the ultimate affront to the church and the ultimate affront to what they were trying to do in New England in particular. Because when we came here, you know, we were supposed to be this city upon a hill. We were supposed to be the shining, you know, beacon of example to the Church of England, which is why they wanted to purify it, which is where the term Puritan comes from. Mm. I'm very into the etym the etymology of a lot of this terminology because it really does help explain a lot culturally. And um, when you're talking about witchcraft, I mean, the word witch has been around a very long time. Um, it comes from the old English, and I'm probably butchering this. I still do it to this day. Uh, Wicca which actually is female magician or sorceress. So it's actually been around and the idea of it being attached to women has been around for a really long time, even prior to, um, you know, what we think of as when people really start paying attention to this, like the Malleus Maleficarum, all the writings that start to come out about witchcraft and its attachment to and being an affront to the church. Um, but what's also fascinating about the term witch is that it actually was put in the laws of Alfred as early as 890. Um, and so it, that is when it was singled out kind of for the first time as mm. like a woman's craft in particular, which is really interesting. Mm. But then there are other forms of the word that refer to a wizard or a male sorcerer. So it's one of those words that has changed in so many different meanings in early Germanic and early English language. Um, and it's just so interesting to me that a lot of the ancient sort of terminologies for that are what we would sort of attribute 
to modern witchcraft, even though it's not the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the case of the Puritans, what witchcraft was is a very, very specific line of that, of that use of sorcery and magic. And what that line is, is that you are agreeing to be a witch means you are signing the devil's book that you are agreeing to be in league with the devil in opposition to the church. Um, You've signed his book in order for some sort of personal gain. And in that turn, you are now granted the ability to do certain things, use certain magics, use certain sort of ethereal um, workings like spectral imagery and things like that to coax others into joining you in league against that as well. And so when people think of the term witch, you know, in the modern sense, that's absolutely not what we would attribute it to. Mm -hmm. And so I always like to get into the heart of what Puritans actually thought that was, because I think it helps it make a little more sense when you think of it as a pure opposition to the church, as opposed to somebody doing a specific thing. It, It is a specific goal. It is not a specific thing, which is so interesting to me. Well, the other thing, I, I recently was reading the introduction of a tr- uh, the translation, the complete translation of The Hammer of Witchcraft. I forget his name, Christopher something. And oh, he's explaining yeah. how it's hard to understand that during that time, they really believed that Satan was against them, that it was not just uh, something that was uh, simple, that they, they really thought there was this, this battle going on that they took very seriously, and you have to put it into that context and that did it kind of helped me a little bit to understand why it was a life or death thing for these particular ministers and even people regular people believing that and you think of like all the terrible things that were happening like from the late 1400s through 1600 with you know the black death and all that and the wars mm-hmm. and and you know trying to find an explanation for things i, I guess is important for all of us it is. And and, and I, I love that you bring that up, too, because that's the other thing, too, is if you think about when these sorts of accusations of witchcraft have popped up, it is, as you said, during times of very hard economical, political or or um, environmental stressors. And with Salem, too, um, you know, as I said, when we first got here, it's supposed to be a city of on a hill. But one of the other ways that this land was described for the people who had been coming here first, because, as we know, it was not undiscovered. But these were the first time the colonists were coming here. Um, they s- described it as a howling wilderness and the realm of the Prince of Air are two descriptions that always wow. pop, out, pop out to me. The Prince of Air, of course, being the devil. So because to them, this land had not been dominated um, or colonized in this way, and it was still very wild and untouched, again, to them. Um, right. <laughs> they they sort of believed that it was a free-for-all for spirits. Um, one of the things they say is like loose spirits or untoward spirits you'll always see in descriptions. Mm. And that is that invisible world that they feel is just as real as the one that we can see with our own eyes. That invisible world is always right next to that. It is always capable of touching into your life and it is very, very real and very, very dangerous. And it's sort of hard for us to grapple with that, I think, because these weren't stupid people. They were, you know, a lot of times Harvard educated. They were very, very well read. Um, we had the highest literacy rate in New England out of any of the colonized areas at that point. Mm. Um, and I think it's just hard for people to grapple with that it was just so real. And in Salem, right before the start of the witch trials, you do have those stressors building up again. You have, you know, Native American um, 
fighting uh, in Maine and things like that. And you have a lot of those refugees coming down to Salem. You have, you know, the economic struggling under our previous governor, Edmund Andros, um, when England was sort of going through the uh, right before the Glorious Revolution, um, which was upsetting how things were working here in Salem since we were an English colony. Um, Our charter getting revoked in 1684 and upsetting the balance of the economy and how things were working in town. Um, The halfway covenant coming in with the church, which is sort of, allowing for a little more liberalism in the Puritan church and who could be a full church member. Um, You have squabbles in Salem village trying to get a new minister. And it's just this thing after thing, after thing, Um, a very, very dry summer that was followed very quickly by lots of rain, which sort of rotted a lot of the crop and things. Mm. Um, So there are all of these things and stressors on this community right at the perfect time that just set everybody off when those afflictions started. So it's, it's, it's all of those things you said are incredibly relevant to Salem and sort of how things were able to play out. It's always been amazing to me that young girls were the ones that were believed. And Mm -hmm. when you think about most um, children during that time, they weren't really listened to. It seems like that they played such a powerful role in all of this, in a way, even though it's kind of, you know, of course, terrifying, it's also kind of puzzling, you know, like, wow, how did they decide to to listen to all these, these young women, you know, and, the, and even yeah. girls, you know, what was it that perpetuated that you would just think they would, I mean, I know that it seems like the parents were behind it, too, at least with, you know, the Putnams, but still, it, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I always like to say the parents are behind it eventually um eventually it does definitely get to that point but initially at least i think with betty paris um you know i think she was hearing her father's sermons in church i mean samuel paris was not well liked by everyone in salem village when he became the minister um the village had to go through i think two or three ministers beforehand there's data lawson there was um George Burroughs, there were some other people um, when they finally split off from Salem Towns Church because they were upset with how things were going here um, with the changes uh, in the church. And Samuel Paris just was not well liked. Um, some factionalism families sort of got into his ear very early on. Um, he made some radical changes to church membership that a lot of people didn't agree with. And then when people started becoming vocal to him and outspoken to him and his family started struggling and he wasn't able to get the firewood he needed and demanded, I should say, cause he's making all sorts of demands mm. um, that are a bit outrageous. You know, he wants the deed to the parsonage house, which is normally owned by the town. That's always how that goes. Oh. He wants um, more firewood. He wants, he's making all these demands. And, um, you know, Samuel Paris, I like to say, is a professional failure. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he got control of his father's plantation in the Barbados. He failed at that, came back to Boston, was a merchant for a while, failed at that, went to Harvard off and on, kind of never finished. Um, so he kind of like luckily tripped onto this job in Salem Village. But, if you have a minister that's very, very full of himself, very ambitious, very young and um, being, you know, sort of fed into this new sort of crisis, his sermons start getting increasingly dark, um, especially with all the difficulties in Salem. Um, mm-hmm. It was a harsh, harsh winter um, right before these afflictions started. It was extremely cold. It was extremely snowy. It was mm-hmm. definitely an adjustment for for everyone involved. And 
these children are sitting there listening to their minister tell them, you know, the devil is here in Salem and he is trying to tear down our very church. This is a test. Um, He's turning people against my ministry and he is at work here in our very village. And you're telling this to a bunch of children who are sitting there internalizing this, who believe all of the things that we just talked about, Mm -hmm. like invisible world. And, you know, um, they're hearing about these Native American attacks. One of the girls, Mercy Lewis, was a refugee from Maine who had witnessed her family being killed. I mean, so there's all of this stirring around. And then, you know, you're having a nine-year-old that's hearing that. And she, for whatever reason, saw something that set her off. And there you have it. It's that quick. And then, um, you know, you're bringing a doctor in. You're sort of hearing the adults. Then the other girls are hearing the adults talking about these things in hushed rooms. And then it spreads to somebody else. And then it spreads to somebody else. And then it spreads to somebody else. And I think in the case of the girls at first, I think a few of them really did believe that something was happening to them, that something supernatural was happening. I think once it was given a name, then it became very serious. Witchcraft was a capital crime. Um, If you were accused of witchcraft or you accused someone of witchcraft, that person could be put to death if they're found guilty. So this was no joke. And you start getting those accusations flying and then the church starts to believe you and then the judges are assembled and they start to believe you. And this very quickly goes downhill. And I think once the first death happened, there was no going back. Um, There was no going back. So even if these girls were still being egged on by all the adults, once we get to the point of the first death, you know, cause it's months before the first execution actually happens. It's from about January, February to June, um, that people are being accused. Um, the court can't even start until June, 1692. So there are, you know, 65 to 70 people in jail already by the time these start. Um, and so with the girls, yeah, I think it's a combination for me, at least with the things that I've read of initial belief, maybe initial sport, as Ann Putnam Jr. actually said, she said it was for sport after the trials had ended. Wow. Um, and then, you know, you have the no turning back point. And I think that's really what it what it ended up being. Yeah, it, it's pretty incredible. And then the whole um, it sounds like the spectral evidence part was pretty uh, important in terms of condemning the people accused. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, and that's a big thing, too. And um, I think why Salem was allowed to get as out of a, ha- a hand as it did, um, the use of spectral evidence is definitely part of it. Um, so typically in witchcraft accusations in the past, what would happen is somebody would be accused. They would oftentimes be brought to an initial examination and hearing. And a lot of the time there wasn't enough evidence to actually bring them to trial because you needed witness testimonies. Mm -hmm. You needed oftentimes some sort of physical evidence that you could prove. And sometimes you could use spectral evidence if the other two things existed um, a lot of the time. But what happens is they start relying very heavily on that spectral evidence in Salem and you know, I always like to tell people nine judges are appointed to that court. Um, there had to be five at every trial. So there had to definitely be a panel of judges available. Um, but the spectral evidence is starting to get used very, very heavily. So, you know, them throwing the fits, saying they're seeing a yellow bird, saying they're seeing a familiar suckling on the spirit of Rebecca Nurse up in the rafters, X, Y, Z, this, that, and the other. 
And um, they would seemingly produce injuries in the courtroom. Um, you know, all of a sudden scratches would appear. And I mean, they probably did it themselves, but, you know, they would say scratches would appear, pinches would appear. Someone would say they were being uh, pricked with a needle is one of the things Abigail Williams said frequently as an accuser. And it becomes, I think, this spectacle and this overwhelming sort of fervor and chaos and everybody gets caught up in it. And what starts to happen is we start sort of forgetting about the physical evidence, the witness testimony, but there was that being brought forward too. Um, Bridget Bishop was one of the people who had the most evidence against her. Mm. Um, she had physical evidence. She had witnesses. She had multiple people saying they saw her specter in the street, um, that they saw a demonic hog that she summoned. Um, you know, uh, that someone said that they cut at her cloak, with a sword in the street, her specter, and then they produce the cloak in the courtroom and there's a hole in it. So, I mean, there was that physical evidence, but yeah, the spectral evidence is what really, really, I think, added that fuel to keep it going as long as it did and as hotly as it did. Now, do you think there was any um, paranormal activity even because of the psychology? I know that that psychological phenomena in groups can produce hallucinations. Um, I, I'm, I'm yeah. always curious as to, cause so many people went along with it and did they, were they just going along with it or was there possibly any, anything at all true about at least people hallucinating? Um, I mean, that's a really hard thing to say. Um, I would say, that is possible. Um, you know, and, and I think without actually being there, it's really hard for us to put a pin on it. I think that it is a combination of everything, really. Um, I think that it is people being afraid to go against the court because they saw how things were going, especially when things started picking up and more and more and more people get accused and higher people in society start getting accused. Because at first, it's it's very marginalized people in the community. It's Titaba, who's a uh, indigenous slave of Samuel Paris. It is, um, you know, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, who are beggar women and women who had sort of fallen out of favor with different scandals, et cetera. Um, even, you know, Sarah Good's daughter, who was four years old, was brought I know. in. Oh, that's just so horrible. Sure. Mm -hmm. And she actually was so traumatized by what she saw that she did get out of it, um, but needed a, a attendant with her for the rest of her life um, as an adult because she was she was yeah. traumatized um, and she ended up on the street afterwards. Um, not very good. And, um, you know, so you have all of these things. And when it starts to be higher members of society, I think there's a little bit of fear. There certainly were people that spoke out against it. Um, and oftentimes, if you spoke out, you better be ready for somebody in your family to get the point, mm -hmm. the finger pointed next. Um but there were, you know, as you saw in the Rosenthal book, petitions for different people. There was mm -hmm. plenty for Rebecca Nurse, um, plenty for John Proctor, these higher members of society that start getting accused. Um, but for everyone else, yeah, I think it's the fear, um, whether of the court or the genuine fear that this is real. I think right up until the end, there were people that still thought that it was real and that there was something supernatural happening, um, unfortunately. <clears throat> Excuse me, but you get caught up in the fervor of society as far as hallucinations, I I would say the initial girls are the ones that thought, if anyone, that thought something was actually occurring. Um, I know Betty Paris was actually removed fairly early. She was actually sent to live with relatives hmm. uh, because her hallucinations were so bad. And she 
was not there for a big majority of the trials and she recovered. Um, she actually recovered being taken out of the situation. Oh, so I think that does speak to the crowd mentality that you're talking about. Once she's removed, she ends up fine. She ends up married later in her life. She has a house and had a house in what is now conquered, um, that she lived in in Massachusetts, you know? So, wow. But, as far as the hallucinations, I do think if, if anyone was actually having them or at least working themselves up mentally to have them, it would be the initial girls. And I think Betty Paris is the one that I would say, right. if anything, really believed at that time that something was happening to her. There's never been any uh, conclusive uh, consensus about why this happened. I mean, in terms of like, um, there were theories I know about the grain that oh, was yeah. disproved and um because it is it is a little perplexing um that like you said without with uh, you know not relying on the spectral evidence so much and that was going against some other areas for witch trials like it sounds like salem kind of cut corners a little bit with how they approached witch trials compared to some of the other areas there there was actually you know procedures they didn't do and and, but it is a, it's a little frightening when you see the the legality of it all, you know, the arrest warrants, the and you know everything. And uh, don't and didn't they have to pay um, for their release or something if they they confessed? Their fees. They had yeah, fees. Yeah, they did. Um, so that was pretty standard at the time. Um, you actually in, in any court case, um, <clears throat> especially when we were going to be in there for a while, you did actually have to pay your own jail fees. Um, so it, you didn't, you know, you had to pay your room and board. Essentially, they didn't feed you. Your family was responsible for getting you food, getting you blankets, anything that you needed like that. Um, they could actually take things from your home to as collateral. Mm -hmm. um, could not take your land. I'll go ahead and say that right now because we're still batting that one down. Um, but yeah, they could definitely take things to pay your jail fees. Um, it was a very, very difficult uh, situation for a lot of people. And there were a lot of people that ended up in jail longer at the end when everything was said and done because they had to finish paying off fees. Right. Um, so yeah. Um, but as far as legality, I think the only person that really skirted the line as far as legality was Sheriff uh, George Corwin. Um, he definitely, him and his cronies towards the end, were getting a little bit liberal with the mm. amount of things they were taking from people's homes for uh. collateral. Um, absolutely. But uh, as far as legality with the trials themselves, until really the pressing of Giles Corey, if you really look hard, it was it was on the up and up. And I think that's what makes it so scary um, because yes, they were using the spectral evidence, but that technically was legal. They were technically following the letter of the law for witchcraft. And I think that's what makes it even scarier. <laughs> now, why was Giles Corey pressed to death? Oh, one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, so Giles is a, is, was a complicated individual. Um, Giles Corey was, known for being a very big, strong, powerful man, even though he was, you know, uh, I think almost 80 years old at the time he was oh. accused, but he was actually known for being very strong. He was known for being extremely cantankerous, um, having a very large temper in, uh, I forget the year because I, I always struggle to remember the year, but he was previously brought into trial well before the, the witch trials, um, for beating a servant of his who was working on his land to death for a mistake. Um, and he was brought up on a murder charge. Mm. 
And interestingly enough, Francis Nurse, Rebecca Nurse's husband, was on his jury because it was a jury of your peers oftentimes. And um, yeah, yeah, he was on his jury at the time and he was let off on mm-hmm. that charge. Mm-hmm. Um, but when uh, his wife is accused, Martha, he actually accidentally testifies against her. Um, and he says, oh, well, yes, I've seen her up at night reading strange books was one of the Aww. things that he said. And they ended up using that against her, putting her in jail. And I think Giles sort of realized what he did and um, said, asked if he could sit in jail with her and asked if he could go visit her and be with her. And they denied him. And he tries to take back his statement and they essentially threaten him with perjury if Mm. he does. Mm -hmm. Um, So he tries to recant his statement and, um, then, of course, Finger very quickly points at him because he gets cantankerous. He gets angry when they tell him no. He is a well-respected member of the community despite his prior charges. So was Martha Corey. And he sort of let the court have it. And he said, well, this is all a farce, all of it. It's a farce, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. But mm. um, once he starts going against that court and he starts getting cantankerous, then boom, who's pointed against its Giles. And what he does is he does something called standing mute, um, which means that he does not enter a formal plea in the court. So one of the legality things in the court is that you have to say you are either guilty or innocent before God and country. And you have Mm. to testify verbally to what you are pleading Mm. um, for them to be able to legally try you. And he didn't. So he just didn't say anything. Mm. So they could not legally try him. And it was just that Giles, I think, knew by then what the outcome was going to be that late in the trials. He knew that there was probably no way out of this for him at that point. And there are a lot of people that say it's so he could protect his land, et cetera, et cetera. But we actually know that prior to him being accused, he actually already signed land over to um, two of his sons and sons-in-law. So that was out of, out of the question, but um, because they couldn't get him to confess things start to unravel because by September in the court, there is more doubt creeping in because there are people like Rebecca nurse being hanged because there is a reverend former Reverend George Burroughs was hanged for witchcraft. um, After saying the Lord's prayer in its entirety on the gallows and people were calling for him to be cut down and cotton Mather, very famous witch finder in Boston, very famous minister steps forward and says, you know, even an agent of the devil can take the form of an angel of light. And mm-hmm. they go on with his execution. And by that point, people are having that doubt creep in. So this looks very bad for the court that Giles Corey cannot be legally tried at that moment. Mm-hmm. So Sheriff George Corwin decides to use, um, a sort of antiquated form of punishment where it called pressing to press him for an answer. Mm. So what they did is they took him out to a flat piece of land, laid him out, put a board over his chest and started to place heavy boulders one at a time, each time asking, how do you plead? We've all heard that that actually did happen. There are a couple of different accounts of this. The main account is from a man named Robert Califf who wrote more wonders of the invisible world after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that at one point, um, the man just kept saying more weight. So that's where we get that. We actually mm. get that more weight thing from Robert Califf, who claims he was there to witness this execution. And he refuses to give an answer, refuses to give an answer. About two days later, they realize that, A, they've now made a mistake. This man is going to die. He is not going to come out of these injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, 
at that point they have heard ribs crack. Um, his face was, you know, swollen purple. Um, he wasn't going to come back from this. And so, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> according to, um, Caliph, Sheriff George Corwin leans down one last time and he says, Giles Corey, how do you plead? And he says more weight. And then he expires essentially because Sheriff George Corwin gets up and stands on him. Oh, and he does finally expire. But this man, I mean, this is two to three days that this went on. Um, Thus becoming the only technically illegal, according to our own laws, execution. But what it does is it also offers a turning point in the witch trials. Because Mm -hmm. after Giles um, is when England starts sort of really paying attention to what's going on. When Boston ministers start to change their minds on spectral evidence and say, we have been using this too heavily. Mm. Um, Angry Smather being one of them um, sort of starts to say, you know, we've been going about this wrong. We need to really take a look at what we're doing. Um, but then they go through with the last round of executions in September of 1692, where eight people are executed. It was the largest one. And there were several people in that round of executions um, right after the you know, pressing of Giles Corey that had their innocence contested, um, quite a few people. So that sort of is the death knell for the witch trials in its own way, because that's really what brings the attention back mm. to what's happening in many forms. Um and so Giles is sort of the most tragic story, but also the death knell for the trials, I like to say. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely memorable, the whole pressing and then what he said. And the, the thing that really struck me about Rebecca Nurse, though, was she was acquitted once mm-hmm. and then wasn't she pardoned? And then they still ended up hanging her. And I, I just thought, wow, I mean, can you imagine that kind of roller coaster of, OK, I'm off. OK, now I'm on again and and her age and. There's something so tragic about that. Like if you're watching like a movie, you're like, okay, she got away. Oh no, she didn't. Oh yes, she did. And I don't know. It's, it's really haunts me. Her story uh, really haunts me for some reason. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. And, and I mean, um, what's interesting about her too, is one of her main accusers is a child that she likely helped deliver into this world Um, was Anne. Putnam Jr. And um, she was a midwife to Ann Carr Putnam and Putnam Sr. Um, I can't even imagine that woman, you know, being accused by someone she literally helped wow. bring into the world. Um, it just sort of puts things into perspective that these were people. Um, I think people sort of forget the human element of the witch trials a lot. And that's definitely um, sometimes I do tours for Bewitched After Dark here in Salem. And that's one of the, our main points of our tour is to humanize the people and talk about them as people who had these relationships in the community um, and not sensationalize it too much because you want to remember that. Yeah, no, it, it, it makes it even more, uh, I don't know, more tragic when you think of that, that this is your own community and, and how that can happen. And of course it can happen in, in different ways in, in the world today. I mean, it's not like this concept has gone away as far as, you know, people turning on each other and, causing harm and, and even death. It, we, Michael and I were talking about that before the show. It's, it's maybe a different version, but it still exists. Oh, of course it does. And, and actually that's um, sort of how we wrap up our tours as we say, like, you know, people always want to know, okay, well, what exactly was it? Um, I think what is so interesting, tragic, <clears throat> and 
frightening about the witch trials is that it was not just one thing. There is not just one explanation for it. It is. And I think the author and historian Ted Baker puts it the best um, in his book title. It is a storm. It is a perfect storm of events that ended in tragedy at just the right time with people that had just the right level of superstition. And um, so that's why I always put a heavy, heavy emphasis on the superstition of it all, too. Um, When you talk about the supernatural involvement, um, you know, the belief in the supernatural is what spurned all of this. I mean, that was the beginning, of course. Excuse me. Other things came in later, um, like community uh, stressors, but also, you know, old grudges and things like that certainly did come into play interactions with neighbors that have happened in the past. Um, And now you see this person accused of witchcraft and you go, oh, that makes sense. Um, (laughs) But even that comes back to the belief in the supernatural and the belief that um, people could willingly agree to be an agent of the devil and cause strife in their community to their neighbors and affect people negatively. it all does, I think, personally come back to that belief in the supernatural. Um, There are, of course, all the other things we need to talk about that I mentioned before um, that really, really put a stressor on this community. But to the Puritans, that meant that they were being punished for something, whatever that was, that there Mm. was something sinister around. They very much believed in, in the idea of being among God's elect and that if you had bad things like that happen to you, there was a reason for it. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really, it's still hard for people to wrap their heads around that, that's, that that belief in superstition and the supernatural could do that. And I think, uh, and wrapping up our tours, we usually like to remind people that we're still capable of that. Um, not necessarily the superstition part of it, but we're very much still capable of getting caught up in that fervor, allowing people to spew whatever is coming out of their mouth and and get people to believe it and and get people to turn against each other i mean it's proven time and time again that we're still capable of that yeah social media is good at that (laughs) (laughs) no there is an interesting parallel um and it's different but it's the same is that there's a rise in the belief in magic again uh Mm. and even demons and angels and it's publicly talked about and it isn't always safe to do it everywhere. There are some countries you can still be killed if you're yes. considered, uh, they believe that in, in witches uh, hurting. So it's not quite the same in the sense it's not this kind of closed community. Um, but there's, uh, and there's also the advancement in technology. And at that time, you had the scientific revolution that was kind of going on. It wasn't that around like 15, 1600s and the yeah, fight between yep. science and magic and so we we kind of have that a little now we do and oh that's oh my god i could talk about it that's one of my favorite things to talk about is the sort of the separation but also the parallels with science and magic in the 17th century because i mean you know prior this is also where you're sort of having like um the medical world start to be dominated by you know educated male doctors and things like that and you're sort of having that shift in cultural standard of of medicine and science and practice And it was so interesting to me is some of the initial, you know, uses of things like the humors and the metaphysical body and things like that. You look at those charts and I mean, they're, they're astrology charts. Um, So you really do have that melding of medicine and science and magic um, in the 17th century. And I mean, you have people, what's one of my favorite things, uh, you know, making things like witch bottles to protect their houses and things too. And that's just, you know, something people did. And 
yet, you know, with all of that magic that's sort of intermeshed with the science, you still have the bad magic though, right? Um, and I think it's like so interesting. Um, so which bottles were practiced by just ordinary people during that time? Like anyone that was into like folk magic? Yeah, it's definitely a form of folk magic. Um, it's definitely, and I always like to tell people that, um, here's the thing, here's the separation. This is why I love talking about that etymology of the word witch, right? Because you have what the Puritans believed witchcraft was, and then you have folk magic. Those are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. I always like to tell people, um, Whereas modern witchcraft and the belief in magic amongst people who are able to practice this and talk about it is a practice. Um, it is a practice and a cultural practice. Um, folk magic even still was a cultural practice in the sense that it was tradition. Um, so it's a little, it's a little different. And um, so it wasn't any form of religion. It wasn't any form of, you know, um, familial ancestral practice other than, you know, I equate it to in the nineties, your grandmother giving you a lucky rabbit's foot. I mean, it's just something people did. Right. And so the witch bottles, yeah, there are many, many examples. Um, actually the museum of witchcraft in Boscastle in England has a lot of really good examples of witch bottles. Um, so it's a sort of Anglo practice where you take a bantam jug and you sort of stuff it with different symbols and things that are meant to ward off. Um, iron nails is a big thing. Mm. Um, shards of glass. You might put some hair or some fingernails of the people you're trying to protect in that bottle. Um, they have found evidence of urine being used in bottles because urine is very much tied to um, bodily fluid is very much tied to the belief in being affected by magic and, and things like mm. that at that time. Um, and you would sort of seal this all up and bury it maybe under your fireplace or underneath your door. And it's supposed to prevent people from untoward spirits, as I said before, from coming and attacking the home. Hmm. Um, poppets, that's, you know, we're using poppets and idols. And that's something that's been used in multitudes of different cultures and religious and magical practices all over the world. Um, but poppets, you know, were also protection charms sometimes. Um, they could be used for what the Puritans would call malefic magic which is, you know, the bad magic, as I said before, because we get that really blurry line with them. We're like, there's this, but then there's the bad. Mm. Um, and Salem, I think, sort of exacerbates that where things that were just, you know, granny's old weird practice are now thought of as evil more. And they're now thought of as vehicles and they're now thought of as going to the devil for help against the devil. And that shift really starts to hit home in Salem. Um and things just sort of get off the rails with something that in essence would have been completely culturally normal um, prior to the crisis of 1692. <laughs> mm. Now, was it, were there any like um, immediate like regrets about toward the victims in Salem? Was there any sort of compensation for the families ever uh, for what they went through? Um, eventually, yes. Actually, um, one of the people that is the first to seek restitution is a man named Philip English. Um, so he and his wife were very wealthy in Salem town and they were both accused and did something that a few people did. Um, they escaped to upstate New York. So they basically left Salem, um, were able to leave because they were allowed to go home from jail at night pending. They came back the next day because they were wealthier. <laughs> uh. Um, so so one day they just didn't go back and they went to upstate New York. New York would not extradite people for crimes of witchcraft. So they were able to stay there. Um, they come back and Philip's wife, unfortunately dies, um, she dies in childbirth. And, and um, she 
when he comes back, though, a lot of his things have been taken by Sheriff Corwin because he left without paying the jail fees, which you had to legally. Mm. I mean, that's legally binding. Um, and so he writes an itemized list um, that the PBD Essex Museum actually still has in their collections. And I believe on their website, they're doing um, a lot of work digitizing a lot of those documents that they have in their collections so mm. people can look at them, which is really great. Um, but you have an itemized list of all of the things that were taken from him. And he only got, I think, like a, a portion of that. They didn't give him back everything. But what he did is he actually set the impetus for a lot of families to come forward and claim restitution for things that were taken. And we do know several families were able to get that. Um, but I think it was as early as the 2000s that the last name was actually pardoned. Um, it, was, it took that long wow. for a formal, formal pardon uh, to come for some of the last names um, that were accused of witchcraft. And then um, there is the Queen of England, you know, tries to essentially settle it uh, in 1693. And she basically says, okay, this is done, done, throw some money at the treasure from the treasury at it. And this is done. We don't talk about this anymore. Um, and it took many, many years for a lot of people to get restitution. I know, um, I believe Samuel Wardwell's family came forward um, for some restitution. Some of Rebecca Nurse's family, um, lots of families did come forward. Yeah, I know there's still uh, her homestead. Re Rebecca Nurse's homestead is still there, right? Because we visited there when years ago in, in Salem and saw that. And it was really cool, actually. It is really cool. Um, and they do a really great job there. I think one of my favorite sites that very like concisely sort of bats down a lot of the myths and misconceptions about the witch trials is the Rebecca Nurse homestead. They have a nice display in their recreation of the meeting house that sort of gets out a lot of the big questions. Um, but it's really, really wonderful that it's still there. Um, it's still definitely used for historical events. It's still giving tours and still educating people. Um, so I am glad this is there. And, and actually, there are a lot of nurses around in particular. Um, hmm. I, I've met so many people that are descendants of Rebecca Nurse because they had a very prolific family. I mean, there were nurses everywhere. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you still meet a lot of descendants of the nurses quite a few <laughs> I didn't know she was a midwife actually I I don't know why but I didn't know I just knew that you know she was older and respected and in the community mm. um but that's really that is kind of fascinating the whole and, and yeah I guess they don't they have like sort of an organization around her the I think they have uh the nurse family have some kind of a organization they do or, I, I think it's remember. like a, I feel like it's a, like kind of a genealogical yeah. Um, sort of thing. Yeah, they, 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 they definitely do. And I'm glad they do because there's so many of them. <laughs> so that's a good resource. <laughs> but that's always, the, that's always the best part for me is when you get to meet a descendant um, who's, you know, researching this for the first time and sort of um, help them put it into perspective, give them some resources and tell them, no, there's a lot, there's a lot you can look at. It's there, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and you can give them those resources to kind of try and find that out. It's really great. <laughs> well, the nice thing about when I first started studying the witch trials, there's so many more papers and research because it got a little crazy with everyone saying it was always these like midwife and women. And that's just not true. And also it was different depending on what part of the world you're in, it um, is, yeah. which is much more interesting actually, you know, and, and I think we talked before the show that there's even statistics where women would accuse women more than men in certain areas. So this idea that it was certainly that women died more, I think that is statistically true, but yeah. that women could be part of the problem was a little surprising too initially, but uh, you know, women are people. <laughs> it's true. I mean, well, right. And I mean, if you, and, and you know, I'll use Salem as the extreme example again, too. Like, 
if if this is what the community is doing and you believe this is happening, or at least you, you know, believe that this person is guilty of what they're being accused of, you're, you're capable of anything. If you have the whole community behind you too. Um, and yeah, you do have like family members accusing each other, um, women accusing women and, you know, even though the belief in witchcraft was that women were more likely to be tempted as as why sort of that word and that, um, you know, the etymology of the origins of the word witch and um, beliefs about witchcraft very much are geared towards women. Um, but in Salem, you know, you did have, you know, men executed as well. Um, there were proportionally more women executed, but there were men as well. Um, and there were men accused as well. I mean, oftentimes family members too, if, if a wife was accused, sometimes the husband would also be accused. Um, you know, again, we have that in the case of Martha Corey and Giles Corey. We have that in the case of Elizabeth Proctor and John Proctor. Mm -hmm. Um, Elizabeth Proctor was spared, right? Because she was pregnant. She was, yeah, she did actually get a stay, um, of execution. Almost didn't. Um, there was one judge, Judge Stoughton, who everybody, you know, points at John Hawthorne, who was all bluster and very much a, an unfair interrogator by all means. He was very extreme. But Stoughton is the one who was the high judge of the court because he was from Boston. Mm -hmm. And um, he was the one who was trying to actually get rid of stays of execution for pregnant women wow. um, during the witch trials. He was trying to, to get rid of that. And luckily he did not. Um, but he floated the idea. <laughs> Yeah, maybe one of those people in the Supreme Court justice is a reincarnation of him. God, I <laughs> help us all. <laughs> so was there anything um, particular that really touched you when you've been um, studying all of the history that's, you know, a, a piece of, of the history there that you related to or think was maybe overlooked or... Um I, I mean, definitely, I think a lot of what we've talked about, just um, the diff, the actual meaning of the word and um, the actual belief in the super, supernatural. I think that people try to rationalize and sometimes they try to rationalize so much that they rationalize away the culture of the mm. time and the context of the time. And I think that that's a very human thing to do because we can't, again, we can't deal with the fact that people were able to do this over such a short period of time, have such a high death and execution rate over that short of a period of time. Um, that's terrifying. I mean, and it's terrifying now. And I think it's so terrifying to people because we do see it reflected. We see that behavior reflected. And, um, and so we have that need when studying something like the Salem witch trials to deflect away to, well, they didn't understand this or they didn't read as much or they were they they were too superstitious or, you know, they just wanted to steal each other's land. You know, we always try to put those very simple explanations when really it's the this was real to these people. And whatever form it may have eventually taken in the form of spite, neighborly squabbles, old grudges later on down the road initially it was this belief and initially it was this belief that this was real and this was happening and we can't really discount that and i think so many people tend to get away from the the origins of how it started because of how it ended up mm. because it turned into that human ugliness and that very you know corrupt shady business later on um and the superstition was the vehicle for that unfortunately yeah, and there is something that happens with group minds. I, I don't know if it was Kierkegaard that talks about what happens, 
you lose your individuality within a group mind. And, and that's probably one reason why one should be selective about what groups you engage with on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to get too into it, but I know that I know that I see it all the time. Um, humans are absolutely still capable of what happened in the Salem witch trials. Um, they prove that every day, unfortunately, but there's good too. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it, it, I think one has to, I mean, ideally for me, history is about looking at it and learning how it can apply to today's world so that we might have more wisdom and not, you know, sometimes I feel people use history as a blackmail, which I'm not for, or oh, they yeah, don't even no. look at history at all, which is probably more common. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, oh, we've had, we've been having a ball over the past years with everyone using the term witch hunt. Um, us, us Salem historians have been like, okay, let's break this down. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's true. It, 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 the, the word itself has meant different things at different times now, though mm. I guess one could say there's an element of maybe, um, some truth in all of like the application of what a witch hunt is that that idea that it has this irrational energy in it or and but but it is different from what actually the witch trials were and and when you think about that what you said about it, the culture at the time and how superstition was really a part of their belief system yeah it was it was and i think um so for me i think that you know it's always looking at the root and looking how the root affected everything else um, it, it, with Salem. And it's, it's so hard to do because it's, it, it was all of those things and all of those stressors that we talked about earlier. Um, and I think, you know, trying, trying to find one specific reason is, is for not in the Salem witch trials. It really, really is. It was all of those things, all of those things at once. And um, it just, decimated a community is what it did. It absolutely devastated and decimated a community. I mean, can you imagine having to go back um, to your life before with people who tried to get your family members killed or in cases did get your family members killed? Um, And Ann Putnam Jr. did actually apologize for her role in it. Um, At the Mm. end of it, she was able, she said she wishes to lie in the dust and be humbled before her fellow church parishioners. And when asked why, and she said, well, I know not whether any of them were actually witches. It was for sport. God, that's almost even worse. Mm-hmm. But it, I mean, I suppose it's better in the long run, maybe for her, but that must have been very painful to hear. No, I, I can't imagine, honestly. I, I don't think, personally, I would not get over that. <laughs> There's no oh, way. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and actually, we actually don't know any of the burial locations. Um, we may know where Betty Paris is, but we don't really know any of the burial locations for any of the accusers, which is always interesting to oh. me. Um there really isn't anything. And I honestly think it's because people were afraid of what would happen to um, the grave of Colonel John Hawthorne, who was um, one of the judges during the witch trials in um, Old Burying Point. Um, over the years was stolen. I was peed on. It was like, and it's now encased in a concrete sort of thing um, because according to locals and according to that that Salem lore, it is one of the most kicked over, destroyed trampled on sort of stones in that area. And that's because again, it was there. I mean, old burial, old burying ground is, um, our charter street burying ground is, um, a public cemetery. I mean, during mm. the day you're allowed to go walk there. You always have been, um, it's not, you know, a movie set or a, <laughs> right. a prop for Halloween as many think it is. Um, it's a real cemetery with real people. And those people 
came to see Colonel John Hawthorne for years and years and years. Wow. So still affecting that town and that memory is always there. Well, I could see why. It makes sense. You know, it's going to go on for forever, probably. Right. Well, we're getting close to the end. Uh, Thank you so much for coming back on. I wanted to give a shout out to your website, lifeaftermidnightsalem.com. And folks, take a listen to her podcast, Life After Midnight. She's got some really great episodes on. I've listened to quite a few of them, and it's really interesting. I always like the topics and how you approach things. I think it's really really fascinating. So thanks for doing that. And thank you for having me on. I always super enjoy talking with you. I love this podcast, um, and I really, really am glad to be back on. Well, thank you so much. I think I learned a lot more about Salem and I'm really happy that there's so much more history available about that time and other times because, you know, hopefully it'll help educate us to the truth as close as we can get. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to add on to that, too. Um, I do have a resource list on my blog website. So if anybody listening wants to look at any of those resources, I have a whole list on there. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. And thank you all for listening in. Join us next time as we continue to explore the esoteric and the obscure together. Have a great Halloween.